I'm Amanda Wheeler, and today our conversation is with Tim Andrews, who leads Consumer Issues for Americans for Tax Reform, and Matt Colley, who's helping lead the fight at the Consumer Advocates for Smoke-Free Alternatives Association, also known as CASA. Uh, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, Amanda. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to. Uh, our goal each week is to look behind the latest developments facing the companies who manufacture and sell the vaping devices that are being used by millions of Americans, many of them like me, former smokers who have quit smoking with the help of vaping. Um, so first off today, we're going to talk about taxes. Uh, who is going to pay the new taxes is the question lawmakers have been debating in Washington for several months now. Obviously, the issue we care the most about is the proposed tax on vaping products uh, that would uh, ostensibly bring us in line with cigarettes. But if you crunch the numbers, uh, it's quite a more extreme tax on vaping products. Uh, Tim, you've been following this issue closely. Can you give us the latest on what Congress is up to? Um, sure. At the moment, it looks as if that proposal has, for now, been killed, which is a good thing. I know a lot of people, such as you, Amanda, putting a lot of work into this. But this really was a horrific proposal because not only would some vape products be more expensive than cigarettes, it's also a pro um, something that will lead to more smokers. It will hit the poorest people the hardest because we know that smoking, um, the smokes and vapors generally come from poorer backgrounds, and smokers are overwhelmingly from the sort of low income earners now. So it would put a, trying to hurt low income earners is in this highly regressive tax would have been devastating. And there's also academic evidence that it would have led to 2.75 million more smokers in the US. Now, they've, they've crunched the numbers. We've got the data on this. This isn't just people making things up. You can look at the data as to what this tax would have done, and it would have led to 2.75 million more people smoking and dying as a result. And if you... um. Look, it's good that it's not currently in President Biden's proposal, but things can always change at the last minute. Like the last thing we want is for, for people in the industry, for consumers to become complacent because they can always bring this back in at the last minute when people aren't paying attention. So I think that we've got some good news for now, but we really need to keep the pressure up as much as possible. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that, Tim. We definitely want everyone listening to the space today to stay vigilant on that particular topic, because uh, just because it's out for now doesn't mean it's going to stay out by any means. Um, Matt, I've got a question for you. Um, so, so there's an argument that comes from the other side that raising taxes deters behavior. That logic being if people can't afford a product, they won't buy it. Um, how do you think this plays out when it comes to taxes on cigarettes or vaping products? Yeah, I mean, the, the argument is obviously if you make it more expensive, then it's uh you know, it's less likely for teens to be able to afford it or, or other folks. But I mean, sin taxes just tend to make the poor poorer. I mean, that's what we've seen in, in the past. It's, uh, you know, will some will a few people quit if, if the prices get too high? Sure. But it also just strengthens the black market. And uh, it just for most people, it just means that uh, more out of their paycheck is is going towards uh their their vice that they're using so um you know as far as uh you know it, would it help I, I don't think history is has shown that to be the case uh whatsoever some people you know there's there's some studies out there look at this city when we did you know when we raised cigarette prices to 15 bucks a pack we had x amount uh um that that quit but if you look at a lot of those high tax cities, they also have booming black markets, you know, like like a, a place like New York or something. So, um, you know, it does just because uh, those people might not be buying them uh, legally doesn't mean that they necessarily quit smoking or, you know, whatever, whatever substance that's being taxed. Yeah, that's a great point, Matt. I think uh you know, that issue about being mindful of the black market that's created. And then also, Tim, that's very compelling data. 2.75 million uh, new smokers created from this outrageous vape tax. Uh, I, I would say that, that this tax seems pretty harmful to public health. 
Um, I wonder, um, you know, if we don't see this federal tax go through, if this final package makes it out with, without the inclusion of this uh, cigarette and vape tax, um, are we looking at any anticipated taxes coming from cities or states um, in the next cycle? I'll throw that out to either of you. Nothing on the horizon there. Well, I think uh, I think. Sorry, I, I was fighting a sneeze. <laughs> oh um, no worries. Oh, and I, I was on. I had my microphone muted. Um, go go ahead, Tim. You're the you're look, the text guy. I think that it's very likely that cities and states are going to try and increase taxes. Um, they tried in about 30 states this year, and a lot of other cities did as well. So next year, in the year after, they're not going to have all of the federal money that the state budgets have been receiving after the, as pandemic relief. They've grown accustomed to spending money. They're going to look for new products to tax. And it's easy, sort of lazy public policy to say, oh, we'll just tax the vapors. So I think, unfortunately, there's going to be a big push at the state level. And we also know as a fact that Michael Bloomberg is running campaigns with like his hundreds of millions of dollars in anti-vaping campaigns is specifically going to be target localities to do both flavor bans and tax increases, which is why I think it's so important for good state lawmakers to try and step in and protect uh, consumers, protect businesses through things like preemption, which I know, Amanda, you worked um, quite hard on trying to get in Arizona this year and hopefully we'll be able to get up next year. Yeah, great point, Tim. And yes, in Arizona, we we continue to work on that next year, absolutely, because for us, um, it's vital that that vape products in our state be, you know, regulated in a coherent and and uniform way. Um, but yeah, I think I'm anticipating a lot of tax attempts in 2022, and that's certainly something uh, that we're definitely on the lookout for. Um, just but a no, reminder. I was going to add, they almost all failed this year. We saw about 30 states and trying to do them. And at the state level, we were able to defeat virtually every single one of them. So I think this is a testament to, you know, the work that Kassar and other people are doing at motivating and mobilizing, you know, the vape army around the country. And we need to keep, keep that effort up because unless vapers start contacting their lawmakers, we are going to start seeing this at the state level. Oh, that leads me to another question for Matt. Is Tim, you make such a good point. It's so vital of the efforts of organizations like CASA. Uh, Matt, I want to ask you, have you guys seen uh, an uptake in interest uh, among the vaping uh, community in participating in these calls to action and reaching out to lawmakers? I, I think it's just so dependent. And, you know, it depends on how scared people get. Like, obviously, if you remember, you know, the... When, when Trump was going to ban flavors, you know, everyone came out and, and did what they could as far as calls to action and going to rallies and whatever. And and so with CASA, it's usually just dependent on what it is, what it is, you know, like the there's a lot of uh, response to uh, um, the uh, call to action for the vape mail stuff. And uh, it, it, so it is just it depends. But, yeah, I mean, if. I think that we got a decent um, uh, amount of response for the uh, federal tax, but I, I don't know the exact numbers. Alex is the guy for that. Yeah, okay, thank you for that. Um, I, I, as far as you know, just sort of casual observations, I've, I've seen a lot more of what Tim referred to as the vape army uh, get kind of reengaged after this very odd year that we've had during the pandemic when everyone's had so many uh, things, uh, you know, pulling their focus. Actually, with some of these recent FDA actions and, and just like this blatant attack on vaping that we've seen. Uh, so before we move into our next topic discussing COP9, I, I wanted to remind our listeners that if you have any questions, we're going to throw a tweet up in the space right now. Uh, you can go ahead and reply to that tweet with any questions that you have for Matt or Tim, and, and we'll start taking those questions here in just a moment. Uh, so before we uh, start taking questions, I wanted to move on and uh, discuss uh, the COP9 meeting of the World Health Organization coming up in Geneva. 
the world's preeminent thinkers on tobacco control are said to arrive in Geneva in November for the WHO annual tobacco control meetings. Uh, like most things in public policy, the meeting is known by its acronym COP9. Uh, we discussed on the space last week uh, that the United States isn't actually a party to the agreement. Uh, we'll be participating in that event as an observer, but what is discussed in Geneva does influence what happens here in Washington, D.C. So I've got a question for Tim. You follow the WHO. What should we be looking for here? I think we caught Tim on mute again. You did. I'm sorry. Um, oh. So this is my first time speaking at a Teams at a, at one of these. So, so bear with me. Um, look, you said at the beginning that it's some of the world's preeminent thinkers on tobacco. I wish that was the case. I wish we saw people who would be going there who are following the science. Unfortunately, the delegates who are going to be going there who are going to be voting on these policies in a behind in a closed door meeting that members of the public and the media cannot attend. The first things they do is they expel members of the media for these behind the scenes. Of, and you will basically have companies that have been bought off, countries and delegates that have been bought off by groups like Bloomberg, who have directly paid the World Health Organization to not do anything to progress tobacco harm reduction. And in fact, to encourage countries to clamp down on vaping. You will have so they said that there's not going to be tobacco harm reduction even mentioned at this COP9 meeting. They're just going to delay it until the next one. But what that will mean is it'll just be the continuation of more bad policies, a lack of leadership from the World Health Organization, and we're going to see our taxes because the US, the US still pays taxes to the World Health Organization. Our taxes being used to promote anti-vape policies all over the world, and I wish I could be a little bit more optimistic, um, but that the US and some other progressive countries might be able to change their mind. But to be honest, I'm not feeling that optimistic at the moment. That's such a good point. You know, I always think of, um, you know, the Bloomberg money influence on the situation, but it certainly is frustrating when you think about our tax dollars funding these types of prohibitionist discussions and policies, uh, you know, in, in countries where, you know, maybe they don't have um, that infrastructure among, uh, you know, vaping businesses or consumers to really fight back against some of these things. Um, I've got a question for Matt. Um, as we've been discussing the World Health Organization, um, they don't recognize a connection between vaping and quitting. Um, I sort of think of their short-sighted approach as this sort of quit or die mentality. What's driving the WHO's position and what role should the U.S. be advocating for in Geneva? I don't think it's just one thing, one particular topic that's driving it. I mean, obviously you have Bloomberg money scattered throughout all of this. So there's, there's going to be influence there. There's a lot of, you know, precautionary principle type folks that are, that are involved in this and uh, um, hate for tobacco companies, but uh, it's uh, you know, I, I think it's just, it, it's that whole quit or die mentality that we've always had with tobacco and they're definitely, you know, I don't have any hope for this, for COP9, just with COVID still looming, there's no way that they're going to soften on, on tobacco harm reduction and, and vapor products, but maybe down the road. But, um, you know, it's, uh, people always want to think that it's like super nefarious and it, sometimes it is, but I think it's just, it's, it's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. There's a lot of money influencing you know, what's going on, but they, I, I still think they they think that they're doing the right thing when obviously we know they're not, but they think that they're, you know, trying to nip this new uh, potentially, uh, you know, damaging product, to, uh, you know, in the bud before it, it, it takes off and, and too many people are using it. But, um, you know, I, it's, I'd love to hear other people's opinions, but I, I think it's just a very nuanced topic and trying to get people to change, change their minds on it is very, very difficult. Um, if I could just add one thing, the, um, the other hope that we have is there are other progressive countries that have very good pro tobacco harm reduction policies. And something that I just learned happened in the United Kingdom, which was just a couple of days ago, which I think would be interesting for your, for your listeners, is that the, 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 the NHS, the UK Health Service, is now going to make 
government-subsidized vapes, so a prescription. So you can go to your doctor, get a prescription, go to your vape store, and your vape store will basically give you free vaping products. Now, I don't necessarily agree with socialized medicine. This is not my ideology. But the fact that you have vaping, as of a couple of days ago, covered under the UK socialized medical system, I think shows just how advanced they are in the conversation. Now, I obviously this is in addition to the regular consumer route, and the prescription model should never replace the um, the, the market-oriented consumer route. But I just think it's so interesting that you see countries this week, and it was unanimous, like bipartisan support. Both All sides of politics supported this. There was a great debate about this um, in the House of Commons yesterday, one of the questions, um, that you have, as I said, you have the government literally using taxpayer dollars now to buy people vaping products and vape liquids and things, and just compare that to the prohibitionist attitude in a lot of other countries. So I think that where the hope will come from will be from countries like the United Kingdom um, trying to use their positive experiences. Yeah, my only my only concern with that is, is that some other countries might just look at that and think, let's just go 100% the prescription oh. model, kind of, you know, you know like what uh, Australia is doing. And, and, and what, you know, eventually will people in the UK try to push it to prescription only. It doesn't look like that's going to be the case for now. You know, they, they're basically going to allow, you know, consumer vape shops, but then have a few products that maybe go through, you know, uh, uh, more testing than, than the others and more uh, uh, studies that they'll approve for, you know, uh, NHS to prescribe. But I just hope it doesn't go too far in that direction where, where, you know, all these countries now think that, prescription models the way to go and, and nothing else. Oh, absolutely. I completely would agree with that. Yeah, uh, Tim, I'm so glad you brought that up. And thanks, Matt, for your insights on that. I was seeing that, uh, seeing information on that over the last few days as well. And I, I thought it was rather interesting because, of course, we've seen uh, these sort of prescription models, um, like you mentioned in Australia, where um, it's very problematic because that's the only point of access to vape products. There are not uh, physicians in place to handle those types of, of prescriptions. And my understanding is that's not being executed in a way that really gives people more access. It's being executed in such a way as to give people less access. Uh, my understanding of, of what the UK is attempting to do is, is to, you know, widen the net with the prescription access to help out uh, people that either economically can't afford vaping products or that, um, you know, would like some uh, doctor recommendation behind starting to use those products, maybe people that have a little bit of hesitancy, uh, trying something like that without it coming from a medical expert. And so I, to me, that would be the key difference is, you know, are you using that prescription model to, to narrow access or are you, are you using it to get more people off of cigarettes and, and to create more access for consumers? And it seems like, uh, most of the feedback I've seen from people who are really heavily involved in UK advocacy, they feel supportive of, of this plan. Um, is that an accurate reflection? It seems like you two have maybe spent more time looking into this. Um, yes, look, the Australian model is terrible, as people have, have probably can guess from my accent, I'm Australian, and the, their experience with vaping is definitely not something anyone should ever try and replicate. Um, it should be, as you say, about increasing access, increasing choices, and uh, never trying to reduce them like Australia is trying to do. So I think that, again, people vapors in the UK will need to be vigilant, but I only brought this up because it just shows that, like, you, you can buy vapes in, in hospitals in the UK. You will go to the hospital and there will be vape stores inside hospital wards where you can buy these products. And it, I was just using this as an example to show how progressive some other countries are with bipartisan support and how they could hopefully give further um, pressure on the World Health Organization. No, and it's it's such a great example. I think there, there's so much excellent policy in the UK that we can learn from for sure. Um, so I, I think I'm going to move on now to our next topic. I'm not seeing uh, any questions from our listeners. I think maybe everybody is uh, uh, recovering from their sugar coma from Halloween. Uh, but feel free to tweet your questions um, in the featured tweet in the chat. 
Um, but now I want to I want to move on and and talk about this ongoing legal saga in the United States surrounding the FDA market denial orders. Of course, we've been following this topic every week on our spaces because it's it's a rapidly developing topic. We're having uh, new rulings from courts come down, new FDA actions, updates to the MDO list fairly frequently. Um, so we we had a headline. Uh, from Alex Norcia over at Filter Magazine this week. The headline read, First Vape Company Full Stay is Issued and Suggests the FDA Miscalculated. We're seeing steady reports of companies taking the FDA to court and winning, at least for now, on the arguments that the FDA's marketing denial orders uh, have some major flaws, particularly in the decision-making process on, on how FDA got to those denial orders. Uh, and Matt, I wanted to check in with you. I think we've talked about this a lot uh, from the legal perspective and, and from the business perspective, but what does this mean for your average vapor? Uh, what does this mean for, for their continued access uh, to products? What does this mean um, for their purchasing behavior? What, what, are, what are you seeing? Well, I mean, it's just more uncertainty, but I think the average vapor is pretty used to that. I mean, I've, I've been vaping for eight or nine years and uh, it's we've been in this kind of constant uncertainty for, for as, just about as long as I've been around. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting. I think like there's one of two scenarios here that's true. Either FDA just got overconfident because they, you know, in the past they've they've had really good success with some of these uh, vaping lawsuits, except for the one back in, you know, with Enjoy. But uh, so either they just thought that they were going to get away with this or they knew that they were on shaky ground and but still just went ahead with it, knowing that they could have some issues in court. And but then they can say if they lose court cases, well, we tried, guys, we tried to get rid of flavors or we, we tried to, uh, uh, you know, uh, really crack down on these products, but the courts aren't allowing us to. I, I, I don't know exactly what the what their thinking was, but it's pretty damn interesting because, I mean, if you read the, you know, and I'm sure you guys did, if you read the uh, the um, uh, the uh, decision from the judges in the uh, Triton case, I mean, it was just they just went off on them and it, it wasn't even close. So, I mean, the, the fact that, I mean, did FDA think they had a chance to, to win that or, or did they, did they expect this scenario all along? I'm not sure. I mean, you're right. I mean, that judgment in the fifth circuit was brutal. They just completely eviscerated the FDA. Uh, that went to, you know, almost to the point of just calling them complete incompetence. Um, but it's yeah. just that. I mean, in the others which didn't get to a court ruling, like look at the very first one, which was the Turning Points brand case. The FDA essentially admitted they didn't read the applications. Like they came and said, "Upon further, after your court case, we've gone back and realised you didn't include all of this evidence that we said you didn't. Now, this is just staggering that they have an admission that they didn't read it. Now, I don't know whether or not it was the theory that you say. I don't know whether they were just overworked or incompetent. I suspect that they probably did just want to ban everything. Then the Department of Justice got to have a look at them and the Department of Justice came and said, "You were, this is ridiculous, you can't just do this, which is why they rescinded some of their um, MDOs. But it, it it's definitely, I think, a lot... I know there's always uncertainty, as you say, we're all used to it, but I think we're in a much better position now with all of this than we were as an industry, you know, two months ago, just the scope of all the court rulings. Yeah, I mean, it definitely gives some hope. I mean, it's such a roller coaster. That's how this industry has always been. When you think we're, it's over and done with and we're screwed, there's, there's a, you know, new light at the end of the tunnel. But uh, um, I think, I, I guess what I'm wondering now is, is after that Triton decision um, or the stay, um, is FDA going to keep fighting all these lawsuits or are they just going to do their own little stays like they like they did with Turning Point Brands and, and stuff where they just say, oh, well, you know, we looked at your application closer. We're going to throw it back into review. Um, so I'm kind of I'm interested to see how how some of these other fights are going to play out in the next few weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I share the opinion that, that you guys shared on actually reading that ruling, you know, as somebody 
who's been on the receiving end of, of trying to comply with this FDA process and, you know, all these ping pongs back and forth between, you know, deadline and date changes, ping ponging back and forth with, with shifting requirements for what actually needed to be in the application. And, you know, absolutely no sense of um, any kind of objective criteria for, um, that designation of being appropriate for the protection of public health, you know, manufacturers were really just left to guess at this process. And, and those, of course, were very expensive guesses to make with, without any kind of objective guidelines whatsoever. Um, and, and so to read that Fifth Circuit ruling and, you know, all of the points that the judge made, to me, it was very validating that, you know, we're not crazy. This process was extremely, extremely willy-nilly how they went about it. I think um, I, I feel good about saying willy-nilly after I learned there was a surprise switcheroo uh, legal doctrine that was cited in that ruling. Um, I think willy-nilly fits in pretty well with that. Uh, but suffice it to say that this process has been um, one of the most unfair things I think I've ever been a part of with the federal government. And it was certainly validating to see that the Fifth Circuit judges um, shared that opinion and, and backed that up with, with case law. And, you know, there are four grounds for issuing the stay. You know, they, they cited that three of those grounds were definitely in Triton's approval. And that fourth ground was at best neutral. And so they felt that it couldn't be more clear that, um, you know, that the, the, the issue of the stay was, was in Triton's favor in this particular case. I, I was happy to see that because I think that, to me, um, brings a lot of hope to people that, you know, perhaps we're not the only ones who see this as an unjust process, and perhaps there's some relief in sight. As far as, um, you know, how FDA tends to act on um, you know, future cases, you know, the other cases that have been filed, because there are still many, many of them out there that I don't think have had any type of determination yet. It'll be interesting to see if FDA continues to file similar briefs as to the one they filed in the Fifth Circuit, which which we see clearly was was not persuasive in that venue. Um, you know, I, I assume they might try their luck in other venues and see if 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 judges in different circuits would side with them. Here's a question I have, and maybe you could answer, Amanda, is you know, there's like a 30-day grace period, right, for them to appeal. But is that only appealing straight with the FDA or do they only have 30 days to appeal in court as well? Uh, so there are two things that, that uh, companies have as far as recourse at the moment. Um, one is through FDA through an administrative appeal. It's called um, a 1075 request for supervisory review. And, and if you look at the updated denial order list from FDA, um, there are several companies on there uh, that FDA notes they're in a 1075 review and they have uh, issued an FDA uh, granted stay. So meaning it was their decision to sort of stay the MDO. The court didn't force them to. It was, you know, they're reviewing this administrative stay that was filed directly with the agency. Um, there's no timeline on filing a 1075 request. Uh, there is a 30-day timeline to file an appeal in federal court. And so I think at this point, for all the companies we've seen MDO'd already, that 30 days is up. Uh, so I don't anticipate we'll see new filings in court until new MDOs come out that will open new 30-day windows for companies. But as of now, I believe all of those 30-day windows for legal suits are closed. I gotcha. So they're still able to appeal directly to the FDA with the 10, what did you say, 1075? Yep. But uh, they can't do the, the, they can't appeal to the courts after 30 days. All right. I've, I've been wondering that for a while. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's quite confusing. Yeah, but the, the Federal Circuit uh, has a, a timeline on it. The FDA administrative requests do not have a timeline on them. Um, that's one of the things AVM is in the process of doing with our members right now. We already filed uh, 1075 requests for our members whose tobacco and menthol flavors got denied. And right now we're working on filing those 1075s for flavored products as well. And uh, those 1075s encompass a lot of the same legal arguments that you see um, filed in the court briefings. They're just done through an administrative process with FDA instead. 
So, you know, certainly this is a topic that we'll continue to cover in the coming weeks, Uh, you know, constantly new developments on that. And I think right now, um, you know, in in the circuit court decisions is is the avenue where we're most likely to see uh, results as we move forward here. So we'll definitely keep you updated on all of those developments in our future spaces. And look, it, uh, Tim, I had, I had, oh, I look, it might be an emotional roller coaster, and who knows what new challenges there'll be in two weeks. But we should take a minute and celebrate compared to, you know, two months ago, we were looking at either the FDA regulating all stores out of existence or could the Congress taxing vape stores out of existence. Like these were two pretty existential threats to the industry, and both of them were really, really serious. And We've had really, really good progress on those two issues. So I think that people should at least take a, you know, take a moment and celebrate a little bit. The battle is far, far, far from over, but it's, we're in a much better place now than we were a few weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you de- you definitely got to celebrate the wins in this industry. I mean, it was funny. I was I was joking with Jim McDonald because he even he sounded optimistic last week, which is very, very rare. So when he sounds somewhat optimistic about something it puts me in a good mood (laughs) yeah i mean i i think we've made huge progress and you know we're in a far better uh position as an industry than we were a few short weeks ago so definitely some good news to hold on to there and i hope we continue to see more of it um one last question on the fda topic for tim um you know there all the big applications are still out there um, obviously, we've seen the one um, marketing granted order for the View Solo uh, products, but all of the the products made by these larger corporations that are are popularly used today, right? That View Solo is is very outdated technology. Um, Views Alto, Enjoy, um, several of these other companies, Jewel. There's still been no decision on these applications. Um, what what are you anticipating from FDA as far as a timeline for FDA to act on some of these applications that remain from these larger companies? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I I don't know. Anyone's get? I mean, this is it is just complete guesswork at the moment. Yeah, I would. I would agree with that. I see. Uh, I see Greg Conley listening in the space. Greg, if you have uh, any inside knowledge, feel free to uh, raise your hand to speak, and we'll pat you in here. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit of an unfair question to ask him. You know, what are we expecting uh, from the FDA? Right, that's anyone's guess. We need a, a crystal ball and a divining rod. I think. Um, so I, I think we'll kind of leave that there. We'll, we'll keep following this topic in upcoming weeks. Well, I think a lot um, of it just depends on how long the ants groups are, are willing to take before going back to court too, you know, uh, I, you know, as far as, uh, forcing their hands since they've technically passed their deadline, even though FDA still argues that that ruling was legit. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I wanted to ask, um, and this question could be for either one of you guys, um, on FDA-related news, we've heard talk recently about um, the new pr- uh, proposed FDA commissioner, Robert Califf. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I wanted to ask, do you guys have general thoughts on that choice of an FDA commissioner and how that might affect um, upcoming FDA activities on VAPE? I think he's going to be status quo. I don't necessarily think he's going to be any worse than than what we have now. Um, you know, he wrote an op-ed back in 2019, I believe, about uh, uh, banning flavors. And it was during the whole E-Valley crisis. Um, but I think he's been pretty silent on vaping since then. Um, so, you know, in the middle of the PMTA process right now, I don't think that there's, you know, there's much he could do as far as jumping in and trying to trying to change much. But I I wouldn't say he's, you know, friendly to tobacco harm reduction. I, I would just I would assume it's, it's it would be kind of a status quo thing. So, hey, everybody, it's Greg Conley. My thought with him would have been similar to how I felt about Janet Woodcock six months ago. This idea of someone who's kind of more of an institutionalist that would see 
CTP as independent within the agency where they're going to make science-based decisions and it's the job of the commissioner to, to stand behind the scientists they hire uh, and the professionals they hire. But then we saw what happened with the uh, PMTA applications following Janet Woodcock's house hearing. So when you combine that with his clear skepticism and hostility towards vaping products during the volley crisis, I would say one in relation to the prior question that we won't probably won't get any big decisions. Zelda Zeller talked a lot at FDLI last week about how they're close on a whole bunch of PMTA decisions, but I don't think we'll get any until an FDA commissioner has been off, has been confirmed and has gone through Senate questioning where one or two uh, five minute spats are spent hammering him on vaping and getting him trying to get him to uh, to give a policy prescription before he's even confirmed. Um, so I don't think that we're going to hear any decisions until then. And I don't have a great deal of, of faith, but with all the court cases, as well as the prospect of going back before judge Grimm there, there's certainly uh, going to be no shortage of directions that this can go in. Yeah, good insights, Greg. I I know, um, you know that that um, hearing where we saw uh, the interim commissioner Woodcock on the hill getting grilled, and then you know we saw such a pivot in FDA's decisions on some of these applications. Uh, you know, interesting sequence of events there, and I think certainly these political appointees are are very susceptible to that type of political influence when when they're making these types of decisions. Um, Tim, did you have any thoughts you wanted to share on this possible nomination of Kayla? Um Look, I think status quo is the best case scenario. Um, I'm possibly a bit more pessimistic about potentially other things that he could try and end up doing, but I don't have any particular insight more than you know what Matt and Greg have said. So I'm going to pause for a question from our listeners. Uh, we've got a question from uh, Dave Morris who asks, why are most U.S. e-liquid companies not doing everything they can do to save their business model? Um, and so I think, um, I, you know, I, I almost feel like I should answer this question because I own an e-liquid company in the U.S., but I, I'd like to hear uh, some thoughts from our guest on that particular question if you guys have any. I just think that every, every answer for every company is different. Some of them were too small to, to justify going forward and, and going out and hiring an attorney to file, file a lawsuit in federal court within that 30 days uh, where it was just clearly speculative that, that any success would have and that judges would not just laugh these cases out of the courtroom and defer to the to the executive branch agency instantaneously. Some people in this industry have taken this opportunity over the last six years to move themselves and expand themselves into other businesses where e-liquid is not the only thing that keeps their families with a house over their heads. So everyone's had to make their own decisions and everyone's had different economic uh, consequences uh, positive and negative over the last two, three years. So I think people need to make their own choices in the matter. And, and thankfully, there's still, uh, to say the least, a lot of competition in the market, at least for now. I also think it's just there's burnout and people have been beat down for so long and they don't, you know, have a lot of hope. Uh, so, I mean, that, maybe now that we've seen a little bit of success in the courts, that that could change. But, you know, over the years, you've had very, you know, various different advocacy groups, various different fights. People have had to pick and choose where to put their money at. They're always confused. They don't know, you know, and a lot of it's complacency as well. Um, but yeah, like Greg said, a lot of them have also, you know, kind of pivoted and, uh, and uh, you know, have just always viewed their e-liquid business as something that could potentially be temporary 
because of regulation and uh, they've expanded into into other markets. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as, as I think Greg hit on a really good, good point there. I think we're at this stage in this process where, you know, what companies are able to do uh, as far as defending their business is severely limited by, you know, financial constraints. I know all of these lawsuits in the Court of Appeals are certainly um, well into the six figures just to get them started, into the seven figures to see them through. And and certainly um, there are quite a few of our small and mid-sized companies that, that weren't willing to make that decision within a 30-day time frame with no evidence it was going to be successful. Because obviously by the time we've seen some of these favorable rulings come out, the deadline to file these cases has passed. And so, you know, that's really limited to the companies who uh, took that leap of faith to spend all of that money filing suits with with no idea of what the outcome was going to be. Um, but I, I certainly haven't seen um, too many companies, you know, being defeatist or giving up. I think, um, you know, everybody is looking for their own path through this within, you know, whatever means they have, whatever alternative business models they might be pursuing uh, for sure. And I, I do think the more things that we see, like this Fifth Circuit ruling, I think the more motivating it's going to be to relight some of those fires, uh, to to really stand up and 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 fight for this technology, fight for businesses. Uh, so I'm I'm hopeful about what's coming in advocacy. I might be one of the few, but I, I I think we're we're going to be seeing some renewed interest in defending this technology. Sounds good to me. So I, I want to move on to our media lapdogs uh, segment of the Twitter space. And uh, this week, I really want to focus on, on the coverage of the spike in smoking. Uh, for baseball fans, 20 years ago, 2001, was the last time the Arizona Diamondbacks here in my home state won a World Series. It was so long ago that they were still wearing purple at the time. That was also the last was, year that cigarette It was the last time my increased. Mariners... It was the last time my Mariners went to the playoffs, too. <laughs> right. So, I mean, two decades ago, right? That's how long it's been since cigarette sales increased. But now we saw a, an increase in 2020. Um, so that that sort of brings us to this media lapdog segment of our conversation. I want to look at how the mainstream media reported on the spike in cigarette sales. Big news outlets like NPR and The Washington Post uh, blame the uptick on everything from the pandemic to unemployment benefits. Uh, but for me, what I didn't see in this coverage was reference to state and local bans or the FDA's crackdown on the most effective cessation method ever devised. You're obviously talking about vaping. Um, Matt, you follow the news. What's your take on how the reporters are explaining the spike in cigarette sales? I th well, okay, I do think the vice, the use of vices definitely went up during the pandemic. I mean, alcohol use has gone up, marijuana use has gone up in some places, and and uh, obviously nicotine use has gone up. That was, I remember thinking that right when when uh, um, COVID started, like this is, you know, it's just when when people are stressed out and uh, they they're stuck at home and and they're just going to do more vices, but the the the. So could that have played a part in the smoking uh, rise? Sure. But the lack of access to vapor products um, also played a part. So, you know, if people are starting to take up vices more, if they don't have um, vapor products around, then obviously they're going to buy some cigarettes. So I think both things can be true. But the uh, um, media tends to, you know, just look at, you know, they kind of skim the surface and, and, uh, and just focus on the easiest narrative. Um, and I'm sure that they were fed that narrative by, you know, public health groups. I mean, the other things, as well as the lack of access to vaping products, because and remember, whether it be through states which had flavor bans or where vape stores were closed for a long time of COVID. I mean, if you couldn't go to a vape store because of lockdowns and they weren't deemed essential, you just got back on the smokes and you just kept smoking, you smoked and didn't get back. But the other thing is, I think there's there's been a number of studies now which have, um, and I can... I can't remember which, I think it was like Princeton or Stanford or one of those universities that actually looked at perceptions around Bali and people refusing to switch from smoking to vaping because they thought vaping was more dangerous. Um, there's a significant number of people who they've been interviewed, they thought they think this, 
they were oh they went from vaping back to smoking um i was talking to someone a few days ago who's has a teenager who she caught vaping and she's begging her daughter to take up smoking because it's at least it's healthier than vaping because the government approves it um like this is completely ridiculous but this is what you see because of a lot of the misinformation for over covid uh, sorry over avali and i think that most people still think that like studies show that i think more than half the population think that vaping is as bad or worse than smoking um, so yeah look it's definitely a combination of all factors the fact that the, all use of drugs and things went up during the pandemic clearly had a role to play but we definitely need to consider both the um, the lack of access but also the misinformation over about absolutely it was kind of a double whammy because you had Valley and then covid came a few months after so um you know even before Valley, i mean the amount of people that thought vaping was as bad as smoking the, the, I forget the exact numbers, but it might have been over 50% even before. And then Valley just took it that much, that much higher. So that, that definitely played a part. Yeah, I would agree. Um, we're going to feature a tweet from uh, user Useful Bell, who shares a struggle that we're all familiar with and, and echoes a lot of the sentiments you all are sharing. Um, but this Twitter user tells us that they're back to smoking because their preferred vaping product has been banned. Um, you know, it's just really frustrating because it's, it's not getting covered. It's not getting considered in the narrative. Um, and, you know, one thing that's really frustrating, we saw a tweet from a campaign from Tobacco Free Kids that um, were attributing this rise in smoking to corporate marketing budgets. And so I think this is my question to Tim. Um, do you think that's an honest correlation between the amount of marketing the cigarette companies are doing and this increase in smoking in 2020? Well, of course not. I mean, they're not doing any more marketing than they were doing in the past. They're not allowed to do it in most places. There are even more restrictions now. And there wasn't any increase in marketing. So the fact that now, if marketing played a role, you would have seen increases in previous years. It's been declining every year. The reason it's now going up is something has changed. You look at what has changed, and it is COVID, it is lockdowns, and it, and it is, you know, avali. Those are the things that have changed. Um, and so those are the two. It is completely disingenuous. Um, and this is, and the antis are just trying to use this argument to cover up, I think, their own failures in many ways. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see where these supposed marketing dollars were spent. I mean, there's only so much they can do. It's basically, you know, magazine ads, store storefront ads, stuff like that. So, um, and I'll just I, add, I, I haven't seen any extra. Sorry, so I'll just add, we still don't know what the youth smoking numbers were for 2021. Since FDA did not deem that necessary to release, that would seem to be a critical piece of information, wouldn't it, Greg? Seems like something that one of these news reports uh, may have, may have one of the journalists could have sought to inquire about. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I mean, you know, that's a continual theme here on the Twitter space. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of appalled at the the lack of um, unbiased coverage, right? You know, really, where is the investigative journalism that's taking these press releases and then questioning them and, and looking for the other pieces of the puzzle? Uh, it's It's been sorely lacking. And, you know, it's not surprising that we saw, you know, that sort of lack of, of journalistic curiosity um, in this increase in, in cigarette sales. Um, so, you know, I think for our last question, I'll throw it out to Tim, Matt, and, and Greg, since you're here. Um, over the next week, uh, what should our listeners be on the lookout for? I think that the... Oh, I mean, I, sorry, go ahead, Tim. But I think the, the, the priority for this week should be making sure that there's no last-minute addition of the vaping tax back into the Building Back Better plan. I think that there is still a real danger that they're going to be a hundred billion dollars short and they're just going to throw it back in there. So I, I don't, I think that as, as we've, as we said before, eternal vigilance, the price, you know, the price of no vapor tax is eternal vigilance. I am watching that. I agree with Tim. I am also looking to see further action by 
any number of courts of appeal with regard to the FDA cases. And then I think as the month moves forward, we're going to start to hear more chatter about what is in the works at various state legislatures that, uh, God forbid, will be back in session uh, two months, three months from now. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, uh, looking at, at more of the uh, court decisions as well, and and the, the the taxes. One thing, one thing else I wanted to mention though about the uh, the media uh, topic is that I also think that COVID has hurt some of the reporting because we're in this time right now where it is definitely taboo for media to question public health in any way because of you know everything that's going on with the vaccines and. And uh, there's so much pushback and whatever. And so the media is not going to, most in the mainstream media, are just not going to butt heads with public health and, and, and try to, uh, uh, you know, take them down a few notches at this point, just because it would like give too much credence to what, you know, a lot of the, the anti-vaxxers or COVID, you know, denier types are, have been saying. Do, am I making sense there? No, you absolutely are. Yeah. And, and many of the reporters who uh, would entertain the thought of questioning the state health department about whether their guidance on vaping is fair or unfair. Still today, there are so many different health related stories relating to COVID, not just people in the hospital, but vaccine policy and and different places responding to COVID and this and that, that many of those reporters, 90% of their time is still spent on COVID related stories. Yeah. So it's just a bad time for them to like, want to, you know, stand up to, to public health. I think not, not that it's an excuse, but uh, it's, you know, I try to put myself in their shoes. So we've got lots of lots of important things to keep an eye on over the next week. Um, I wanted to thank Tim and Matt for joining us today as our guest on the program. And thanks to Greg for, for hopping in to share some insights and information with us. If you don't already, please make sure you're following both Tim and Matt on Twitter, Greg as well. Um, all frequently uh, have many thoughts and ideas we should all be paying attention to. Um, and make sure you join us next week at the same time, 3 p.m. Eastern. We'll be having a chat with Michelle Minton, a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on consumer policy. So thank you all again for joining, and we'll talk with you next week. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you so much.